Hello, it's the 6th of July, 2023. Uh, my name is Kieran Desai, and this is a podcast on competition and employment law interface. And I am pleased to be joined by my colleague, Robert Forsyth, partner in our uh, employment practice. Um, this is a matter which has arisen technically last year, but there's been more momentum um, this year. And this podcast is really a call to arms to HR departments, but also in the transaction space as well. And I thought I'd give a quote from the Competition and Markets Authority uh, Senior Director. When it comes to labour markets, breaking competition law won't just negatively impact staff and potential recruits who rightly expect their employers to play by the rules as they cope with the rising cost of living, but could result in large fines or in the disqualification of directors if you are caught. Now, in the past, restrictive covenants, restraint of trade, were terms where um, employers and employees uh, engaged and where competition law really didn't have a role. And this has been the case since medieval master and servant uh, issues um, arose. But because of that, the competition law really didn't have a role or, or very, very little uh, involvement. But this seems to be about to change, both in the UK um, and beyond. The UK's Competition Markets Authority in February uh, this year published a guidance, although if you read it, it's really more of an instruction manual, um, addressing competition concerns uh, that it has found. And they relate to uh, wage uh, fixing following a case in 2022 against um, BT. It's not a one-off. This seems to be a hot topic that's being picked up by the CMA and indeed competition authorities um, in other countries, such as um, France. The departed uh, CEO of the CMA, Andrea Coselli, uh, at a conference earlier this year, remarked that he was surprised this subject um, had escaped his attention as a likely broad material topic for regulatory concern uh, for competition um, authorities. And we're going to address this subject um, over the next uh, 20 minutes or so. Um, and we're going to start by a little bit of a background from an employment law angle and from a competition law angle. And um, so first from a, an employment law angle, perhaps, um, Robert, you could just introduce some of the phrases and the concepts that are sort of float around on this subject. Thank you, Karen. Yes, certainly. From an employment law uh, perspective in the UK, there are a number of steps that businesses can take to protect themselves, retention of talent, um, uh, trade secrets, confidential information, and IP. Those are included in the employment agreements of senior or key um, employees and, and directors, and they need to be thought about and considered to be tailored to the individuals in question and what exactly um, you, you are trying to protect and, and what the risk uh, you see for the business is in relation to that person. So 
the clauses that you include in uh, contracts of employment are restrictive covenants, and these are uh, the, the the main mechanism for protecting uh, your business from a company's uh, perspective. You can include non-compete mm-hmm. provisions to stop people from joining a competitor for X period of time. You can stop employees from soliciting business from your customers, clients, or prospective customers, clients. You can stop employees from from interfering uh, with your uh, suppliers. You can stop solicitation of, of other uh, senior or key employees to protect against the risk of, of team moves um, with the work that follows. And, th- and this is presumably over and above those provisions that are intended to protect the intellectual property of the corporation and the confidential information that it may hold. That's absolutely right, Kieran. So you will have you can have clauses in your contract that, that deal with confidentiality mm-hmm. and the ownership of intellectual property rights mm-hmm. um, uh, during and after uh, an employee's employment. But unless you have explicit restrictive covenants, then you don't have any mechanisms to stop um, your CEO from joining your main competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why in terms of the contracts, you need to think about what protection you need and what is appropriate for the level of employee and um, to make sure that the the employee the, the employment agreement is is signed and executed so so when do these issues commonly arrive I mean, you're implicating the implication is before the senior person is is hired presumably those four site yes. provisions are, bit, are are trying to be discussed and Yes, that's that's absolutely right. So there there is a there's often a negotiation piece before someone joins in terms of what protection is needed and and what the employee thinks or prospective employee uh, will agree to. In terms of when issues arise, yeah, for us we also see it at the other end when someone picks up the phone to say we've got a problem X and Y have just told us they're leaving to join yeah. um, our competitor. We look at the contract and there's nothing in there that's an issue or, or perhaps um, you know, there's there's a type of protection in there but actually it doesn't stop someone from soliciting yeah. the rest of the team. Yeah, And I, I, I suppose these issues become more or less difficult if a senior person is leaving under difficult circumstances, shall we say? Yes, that's that's absolutely right. So if, if it's a surprise and, and there's there's information that you're not aware of in terms of what what terms you agree and or if someone's leaving under difficult circumstances, then there's also scope for negotiation often in terms of release from some of those covenants. That's good. And and I mean, I'll ask a question, but then give a frame for it, perhaps. So are there any sort of well-known myths in this space? And the, and the frame I would, I would offer, perhaps, is to what extent is this framed by legislation or is it framed by common, common law um, and therefore judicial rulings? There are a number of uh, well-known myths in terms of where the law comes from on this point. It comes from the contracts of employment and judicial decisions and interpretations of what is reasonable to protect um, the uh, the interests of, of a business. Um, and the restrictions shouldn't go any further than that yeah. um, in terms of reasonableness. In terms of myths, um, a, a common myth is uh, restricted covenants aren't enforceable in the UK. Um, so people will apply perhaps more of a US approach 
Uh, so the you know starting point is they're they're unenforceable. And California rule uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, another one, they haven't paid me for it, so they uh, they can't enforce. Mm. Um, and the other one is is uh, about length of um, length to the restrictions. Yeah, yeah. It, people think they might be able to to stop someone from competing for for five years. Yeah. Um, uh, where when that simply won't be enforceable. All right. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll probably get to jurisdiction in a minute, yes. right? So. Ahead <laughs> of myself, <laughs> and you know the various elements that you've described. Just in a sort of practical sense, how do they how do they come up? Is it um, is it, it's all contract? Is that really where it's all co- where it's written down, or are employees having to refer to some general terms that the employer may have? From an employer's perspective, you, you will need to be able to point to restrictions that exist yeah. in someone's employment contract or deed, and. If there are general provisions in a policy or handbook that apply to everyone, they're very, very hard to enforce those because they're not tailored to the individual. Yeah. Um, and equally, if you, you have a junior employee um, that you engage and they have very severe restricted covenants, then you look at the covenants as at the point that person joined, not further down the line when they may have risen to a more senior position. Right. Okay. That's good. That's interesting. So just to ask, um, in case it's non-obvious, so who litigates and, and why? Yeah. Great question. It, it, normally the the company that's losing the employees will, you know, there are steps you can take before you, you get to litigation, but you can apply for injunctions to stop people from uh, joining Competitors, so to to up to uphold the restrictions, mm. to stop people from taking various types of work, you can take another step in terms of suing for damages lost that flows from yeah. the breaches of those um, provisions. There also there's also action you can take against the company, the competitor that the that the, the employees are joining mm. if they were aware of the restrictions the employee was subject to, which often they will be then. Yeah, thought of inducing the breach of contract, which yeah. opens the door to, to joining them in it as a party, which is attractive from um, for, for a number of reasons. Yeah. Um, so that that's that's generally um, generally uh, who who litigates. Mm. Um, you may you may not get to litigation stage, so you may seek undertakings that persons X X and Y will abide by the terms of yeah. their contract and the restrictions. Yeah. And also that uh, competitor has not taken any steps to induce those breaches and or make them aware so that if further down the line there are breaches, you can show that they were fully aware of them. And is this sector agnostic or or you know, is it going to arise more in the nuclear industry than the confectionery industry? I have to give two flippant examples. It is sector agnostic, but we see it in certain sectors more right. than others in terms of uh, how keen people are yeah, to yeah. to litigate. So, uh, financial services there there are parts of that where companies will be will be very keen to protect their interests. Others where they ex- there's there's a certain amount of acknowledgement that that people will move around. Right. Okay. Um, uh, tech is is an area an interesting area in terms of IP trade secrets uh, and and the damage that can be done. We saw we've seen it in um, in, in Formula One mm-hmm. with um with, with engineers moving between. Teams yeah. between yeah. teams yeah. and corresponding fluctuations in the um in in the in the uh, in the performance of those teams. Right. Okay. And 
I mean, just from a competitional point of view, I would um, the, the thing that's glaring at me is um, define competitor. Um, that must be a challenge. Is it? Uh, do people define? Uh, do you define it in general terms, or do you do general terms and and, and name competitors? Because I mean, the more precise it is, the more likely it's enforceable. Great question. So you you would you would need to at the, at the very minimum have to find a, an area of business that that, that you're in, yeah. um, and that that's where you see your competitors. A number of companies will go that take that further step in terms of listing. These are the companies that that we view as competitors that you're not yeah. allowed yeah. to join for X period of time. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of clients or prospective clients, there will there will normally be. Um, on an ongoing basis, an understanding of who an individual's clients or customers mm. are at any given point in time that can be yeah. referred back to, mm-hmm. with, with a view to to enforcing a covenant or not. Yeah, very good. Okay, I think that's that's that deals with those background points. Then, so well, let me do let me do the say the other half of the sandwich, so to speak, from a competition law point of view. Let me just throw some terms out there uh, by way of introduction. Um, and also talk about competition law as as relates to this subject, at least to date. And one of the phrases that comes up often in this uh, space is unfair competition. But actually, um, unfair competition dates back to uh, the Paris Convention of 1883, uh, which is um, not that well known, although there are 170 uh, signatory countries, so it's quite broad. But I raise it simply to take it take it down because it's not... It's not really um, relevant. It's it's more to do with inappropriate ways of corporations competing with each other, particularly in a IP context where you basically said someone else's IP is a load of rubbish. Restraint of trade used to be an area, and there is an overlap there because uh, whilst I suggest employment law is always focused on the concept of an employee and the employer uh, and as a contractual relationship, um, competition law tends to focus on economic agents, so it's a law to do with um, um, economic agents acting individually or with others. And in that context, restraint of trade is focused on the extent to which it's a restraint of the trade of someone. And this goes back to also medieval uh, Europe and the guilds, where it was allowed or not allowed for a, a new baker to come into a town and start baking bread and that's obviously you could look at it from a baker's point of view as the person yeah uh, but you can also look at it as an economic agent so uh, mostly competition law deals with businesses in the normal sense of that word but it has drilled down and there are cases where um, opera singers were regarded as economic agents and were claiming that a competition provision or a provision of the contract uh, was not um, enforceable against them so one of the other things that's quite um unclear in um, law but actually in practice it's very clear so trade unions as a collective of employees um, sounds like a cartel if you took a blank piece of paper but it's been um, well recognized from a public policy point of view that competition law doesn't address what trade unions get up to in that context um, well let me address maybe the first one uh, where where you address which I think was when you know when do issues commonly arise yeah commonly arise so um, they most commonly arise on the subject we're talking about in the M&A space. And um, their competition law applies to 
um, really two aspects um, that I can, I'd like to pick up. One is clean teams. So in an M&A space, you often have discrete persons within the organization who are um, receiving highly confidential information in relation to a potential acquisition. And it is something that um, is thought about within the giver of the confidential information. They obviously want as few people uh, to have this information. So typically from the target corporation's point of view, um, as few people on the purchaser side. But it is something to bear in mind, I think, from a, a, a broader perspective, perhaps when drafting contracts as an employer, um, thinking about people who are finding themselves in this clean team space and actually have confidential information, which isn't confidential to the employer, but actually to a third party and is bound uh, for some time uh, under those provisions. So there you could you could envisage something coming up. Also, as just as a side, because I'd mentioned unions, informing trade unions about about large transactions which affect um, significant numbers of employees, um, depending upon the country where employees are affected, but particularly countries like France and Germany, um, a lot of advance warning has to be given to trade unions and to engage with them. And this can have quite an important um, consequence for a transaction timetable. Um, so that aspect uh, definitely comes up. And and are there, you asked me about sort of well-known myths, but are, are there similar sort of urban legends and, and myths in relation to, to competition or yeah. refrigerated trade? Well, I think that um, traditionally, as a competition lawyer, we would have been asked restraint of trade questions, and we would have approached it from an economic point of view, which is partially right but partially wrong, um, because you need to address it from the employment law concepts as well. So I think that's one of the, the sort of myths. Um, but I suppose the biggest myth is is not the past but the present, which is why we're here today, because competition law does apply to this space, Yes, uh, and one needs to be cognizant of the issues that arise and, and in terms of um in terms of that how exactly does it does it apply is it is it a new law that, that's come in is it contract yeah that's a good point um it's not a new law i think what i would say is it's an area where people didn't really think about it very much okay and it seems to have arisen we'll talk i think a little bit later about maybe why it's ar arisen in the past year or so yeah. Um, so I would say we're not, as from competition law, we're not changing any vocabulary. We're just saying you need to be aware that this this all applies in in your your space, and so be aware of it with a, with a sort of different lens, with a different lens, exactly, on top of the one we've traditionally yeah. sort of focused through, exactly. Um, and in terms of sort of litigation and issuing of, of claims or yeah. taking action, how does that tend to happen? So, competition yeah, slight, slight sidestep then, I would say. Um, obviously, going forward, one might find, even within the traditional employer-employee um, relationship, a competition or argument arising, even if that's probably not going to be the strongest argument, but it'll be perhaps another argument that comes up. But I would say, uh, in that sort of contentious theme, whistleblowing okay. on this subject could come up. But more importantly, outside of litigation... If you've got a competition law problem as a corporation, you need to be aware that it's not the litigation you need to worry about, it's the competition authority who will investigate. Um, and they have a very big stick, which is called a fine of up to 10% of your turnover. Wow. So, you know, that's possibly the, the thing more to focus on uh, and why, you know, one of the reasons why we're addressing the, the topic today. Th thank you, Kyo. And in terms of 
sort of practical examples of um, what the competition authorities appear to be focusing on. Yeah. Are, are there any that, that, that have come to light recently? So I would say uh, two points. One is training okay. in the um, sort of HR department context. Uh, we'll talk about that, I think, in a minute. And the other thing, just as a um, uh, technical point, also in competition law, you should be aware if you, obviously, if you do something which breaches competition law, that's breach of competition law. But if you do something through an agent, third party, that can also be a breach of competition law. So I, I, you know, it'd be interesting, we'll discuss maybe later, that you might use a third party recruiter, but instruct that recruiter to do or not to do something. And that in itself could be a breach of competition law. And that third party would also then be a party to that illegal conduct as well. Really? Yeah. Gosh. So there's you know, there's some interesting side points, perhaps. So I, I guess that takes us actually quite nicely to some of the practical examples that the you know the competition authorities um, appear to be focusing on, and um, we we've together got three examples that we thought we'd talk talk about today. So that's if I read the first one, and and, and we can go from there. So. It's just an example. It's Big Tech X agrees with Big Tech Y, other technologies companies are available, uh, to not cold call software engineers employed by the other. All right. And so from your perspective, I'm, I'm sure you just say, well, that's, no, that's a no poaching um, way of um, acting. From your angle, how do you sort of see that in employment law? And then I'll I'll give my pennies worth in relation to competition law. From an employment law perspective, you would need to have that built into the contracts of employment of certain individuals for it to be enforceable. And you'd also need to think um, about um, who you were stopping um, the poaching of. So if it's software engineers because they're key to the tech that that Big Tech X is, is producing yeah. and also for Big Tech Y, then you know, subject to the length of, of the covenant and the geographical scope of the covenant and other points like that, then you know, that would, on the face of it, currently be permissible, yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So from And so from a competition law point of view, I mean, this is, this is a big no-no. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the and the way the the sort of the the really uh, uh, acid way of cutting through and trying to understand it from a from a competitional point of view is um, this is not the relationship between the employer and the employee that we're now thinking about. This is an agreement or an understanding between two corporations who are supposed to be independent and who are supposed to be competing for talent, just as they would compete for customers and financing and all the other things that one competes for in life so that would be the the sort of one liner on on that um aspect so no no poaching i mean we might we might address this towards the end but um if the software engineer can only work for big tech y or big tech x that also goes to the definition of competition of let's call it fairness yes on the ability of that person to seek gainful employment but um in the market in the marketplace and and you, and you wouldn't from an employment perspective you wouldn't be able to, to introduce a blanket prohibition yeah. on um, employee X uh, n- not poaching anyone from yeah. um, from from Big Tech Y. Yeah. You, you'd need to, to to link it back to a certain type of uh, a key or, or senior 
individual there. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's go to our second example. So um, automaker X agrees with automaker Y to inform each other when they hire an engineer from the other entity. So in competition law speak, this is called information sharing. It's probably a more subtle um, um, challenge because one might say, well, what's the problem if information is being passed across? And this, I'll give you sort of two points from it and then I'll flip it to you and just see if you've got a take on it. But the first is actually it's just information sharing is not a good idea between competitors. That's just a, one of the competition mantras. Uh, and the other reason is that the there's there's going to be a fuzzy line, I suggest, between information sharing and going to no poaching. So that's you know one of the other the other aspects as well. I think you're absolutely right from 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 an employment law perspective. That agreement wouldn't necessarily, on the face of it, cause any issues. Yeah. But then you. Yeah. The boy you'd be made at the end in terms of what that actually triggers. Yeah, you, you can see it very likely being well. Actually, no, you can't. Yeah, yeah. And then you would have to look back to say, well, what? Well, why not? Yeah, yeah. And unless there were enforceable covenants in certain employees' yeah. contracts who were who were involved. Yes. Um, and then then there, there wouldn't be any steps you could, you could take to stop it. Would be purely information. Yeah. Exchange. I suppose, uh, let me throw a, a random question then, uh, but on this subject, could an engineer who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to tell their current employer where they're going to do so, subject, let's assume that there are no other res restrictions about where that person can work. The, the current employer is keen to know where the person is leaving to go to, but that person just doesn't want to say. Maybe he's embarrassed or she just doesn't want to... There would be there would be nothing to 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 stop that yeah. employee taking that um, that approach. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. No. No. no you wouldn't have any um, any ability to compel. Yeah. The employee to disclose. Disclose. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then another one. Um, just our third example here. So an NHS trust or a hospital, if if you're outside of the UK. Um, X agrees with NH, tr NHS Trust Y uh, to set a cap on the per diem that they pay locum surgeons. So from a competition law point of view, this would be called wage fixing, although it's quite a subtle one, actually, from a competition law point of view, um, not only because of the example that I've, I've chosen, but just the fact that wage fixing is is one of those odd areas um, not quite clearly within the competition field, to be honest. Yes, and, and here we're talking about locum surgeons as opposed to uh, normal nurse and or, and sort of nurse or something, yeah. Um, so that that does also have implications for the, the employment sphere, but yeah. that agreement in of itself wouldn't, wouldn't be an employment law point yeah. to take. But I agree; it certainly certainly fits within within the competition, yeah, yeah, um, uh, bucket. And the um, I suppose the locum the, the the surgeon himself or herself would would have objections, but they couldn't point to their employee employer in some fashion to have breached. 
that employer should be free to negotiate the salary or the per diem in this case, but is, is but is self binding itself, right? That's is that an. I don't see a, I don't see an issue with that per se because a company might or a trust might decide that just doesn't want to pay X is X is the cap yeah. but they're prepared to pay yeah, for um, an individual at that level. Yeah. If they then struggle to recruit, that becomes an internal decision for them as to whether they want to to stick to that policy or change in yeah. light of the issues yeah, they've encountered. Um, but I don't see a legal from a from a pure employment perspective um, where. Um, uh, where that's applying to to surgeons who are employees of the trust, I don't see a form of redress there yeah. from a from a pure employment perspective. I think yeah. I need to go by a different route. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So then, the the I mentioned at the beginning this that this is sort of a call a call to arms and um, just to be um, action orientated. I think we should discuss what the what the actions are that should or could be taken in relation to this. Um, um, should we say um, new focus area for um, competition authorities? And um, we've got three to to consider, and perhaps we just address it from again our our sort of respective basis. So, so the first is an audit. Um, I think, in particular, for large corporations, audit is is um, something to consider, probably especially in the tech and health sectors. Yeah, um, just for reasons of. Uh, skill shortage generally which has been recognized um but maybe also franchise um owners where again some issues have arisen um and what what are we auditing or what are we seeking to check well it's it i think would be to check whether there are already issues now that the sword has been drawn by the competition authority the question any corporation really ought to uh be thinking about is well have we shall we say in the recent past fallen foul of this and if we don't find out then uh, that could be a problem and certainly from a competition law point of view if you do look into your book so to speak and think you might have an issue then you can discuss with your external counsel and take a, a decision on whether you might want to bring it by way of leniency to the attention of the competition authorities um, who uh, if accepting it lean the application of leniency will Amongst other things, uh, mean you don't have a fine because you're you can be granted immunity from a fine. So that's the sort of reason from an audit point of view. But maybe Robert, you could address that not only from an employment law perspective, but just in terms of how you see practically that being done. Thank you, Kieran. I, I think the other point that springs to mind there is in terms of of the sort of the, the general audit of what protection do you have. Um, or not, um, then with a view to uh, recent acquisitions and deals that you've been in, involved yeah. with on either side, uh, a review of well, uh, do do that do those protections that we thought we had or we thought we were subject to, are they now um, out of date? Yeah. Will we be able to rely on them? Will we not? What does that have in terms of consequences for consideration, deferred consideration, um, and um, and an earn out, and, and um, all those points? And if you're in the middle of negotiations yeah. um, on those on those matters, then it's certainly worth um, considering considering through not just the pure employment and commercial terms of 
of of a deal, but also with a view to you know, will this will this create an issue from a competition perspective? Yeah, and uh, far better to address that now rather than than waiting until you've you've closed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then the second point that we've got here, so compliance is the, is the key word. So to ensure going forward uh, that relevant persons are aware of the issues, and so hopefully avoid them uh, going forward. And, you know, this is something that the um, uh, the CMA in the UK, the Competition Markets Authority, has um, asked of business or instructed businesses to do. But this will be training and webinars. Um, I suppose, Robert, from a practical point of view, this would be not only just awareness and sensitizing um, relevant um, stakeholders in the business, but even potentially moving to a sort of adoption of a, of a policy or policies in this space. I think that's right. I think it, it's 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 making sure that you build it into your your existing program of of training um, and updates, and and also making sure that it's a is a point of consideration for for deal teams and for your HR teams um, uh, when you're looking at senior or key um, employees, founders. Um, so, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And actually, one of the things that we were discussing earlier is that uh, certainly in the senior executive space, recruiters or uh, headhunters, whatever phrase you want to use, are often used. And, um, you know, the point I was making is that if they are brought into yes. um, conduct, which is um, um, problematic from a competition law point of view, well, firstly, they themselves are then potentially um, culpable, um, but also secondly, Getting them to do the dirty work doesn't um, um, excuse, if you will, the the employer in this case um, from um, the the uh, from culpability as well. So that's something just to be be aware of. Um, and and I suppose one could even have a flip, which is the recruiter might think or make an assumption about what it or should should or should not be doing, but actually you haven't really asked it to. And so, so engaging, I think, with your recruiters to make sure they understand the rules is probably also a good thing. Absolutely right, and and they're asking questions at, at an initial stage as, as well as you then following up on that yeah. when you get to um, to to interview stage. So that that you know that takes us to a th- I think a third element of just actions so where where unfortunately perhaps something has been found. Um, and then, of course, uh, investigations uh, ensue. So this is really the defence side of things, and I just thought I'd mention a couple of points. So because this is a competitional authority rather than a litigation-type concern that we're principally addressing, um, the first that it will be seen as a problem by the corporation is a so-called dawn raid. Uh, It doesn't take place at dawn, generally a more reasonable hour, around around 9 a.m., um, but the uh, members of the uh, Competition Markets Authority will be turning up at the offices uh, and uh, demanding access to the books and records of the corporation. Uh, compliance um, is required under the various uh, legislation and non-compliance will uh, usually lead immediately to quite significant fines to the order of several million uh, pounds. Um, and so uh, it has to be taken very seriously. Uh, it is very in-depth in terms of the investigation that's undertaken, and it's very disruptive uh, for management, 
it's a lot of work for in this case it'll be hr department and the in-house legal uh, and lots of money on advisors um is um also typically um required to defend uh, the company so that's another reason uh, why you should avoid it and take preemptive action and be trained to avoid investigations uh, and certainly to avoid um culpability and breach of competition law which has i think increasingly these days also um seen as a reputational issue for um many corporations so let's uh, finish i think robert with since everything seems to be digital these days including law perhaps if we look through a digital lens and, and just think about what aspects of today's subject is particularly relevant for the for the digital society do you have a do you have anything that's that's sort of particularly relevant from an employment angle i think from an employment angle at the moment um since the pandemic hybrid working yeah um and um digital society we live in people are increase, increasingly be based not just between home in the uk and 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 work but but maybe abroad um so you therefore need to think about yeah, you know, there are various consequences that that flow from that, from the immigration or tax perspective. From yeah. from, from our side, there's also an enforcement um, perspective potentially in terms of uh, of which court you'd be uh, trying to enforce your your covenants on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and you know, which was the appropriate um, law to be applying over in Europe? You know, there are some countries where um, employees are paid for. Um, uh, the period of the non-compete that they are uh, agreeing to, that is something that the government um, is looking at. Um, I think the other point that I would make uh, on sort of the, the digital society we live in is 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 how easy it is to recover um, information. So you talk about investigations and dawn, dawn raids yeah. and how, um, uh, how you know, WhatsApp messages um in cloud etc can certainly be accessed mm. now so from an evidence trail um you know, it's, it's it's always surprising the number of uh, of devices that that uh, are lost you know, either either before or, or during cases of, of yeah, yeah. this of this manner and and you know, the general approach of the court will, will not be favorable yeah. to to those to those turn of events because people suddenly realize that actually that WhatsApp chain will will be discoverable and, and will be extremely damaging. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in the context of, again, the digital uh, markets, it does seem to be more team moves than, than perhaps I would have been conscious in the, in, the, in the past. And so, you know, team moves that have quite a significant impact on a business, um, either to or from a startup. And uh, Absolutely. And in those... Um, in those situations, you were asked about who litigates and why. Well, well, sometimes businesses are then put in a position where they they have to litigate to uh, because you know the impact will be so significant on their bottom line and or to send out a message to to others and or and 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 the market that that, yeah. that they are um, prepared to, to to defend their legitimate business interests. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's in a sense part of the skill shortage challenge that you you mentioned before absolutely and i and I, I know kieran um your um uh, uh 
you've been reading about sort of recent develop developments, and it's not just perhaps the the the, uh, the, the normal world that we would be working in, or or, um, yeah. or, or, or conducting conducting business in. So I don't know if you had any sort of. Well, it was just yeah, it was other thoughts, it was somewhat humorous, I suppose. But I did read that there are concerns about working in the metaverse and um, how provisions like non-compete and all the other things that you talked about, like tax, etc., uh, might might come into play. Um, I mean, let's see. Um, we may not be tweeting anymore. We may be threading, I believe is the new phrase. But um, uh, that's just, I think it just shows that as the digital um, society moves um, into new spaces, uh, the old rules or principles may apply, but may have to do so in different ways. I think that's right. I think there's also a, a, a lag between the, you know, the pace at which digital society is changing the world in which we live and work, and then yeah. you know the, the rules and and laws that that we have, and and how applicable and adaptable yeah. they are. So that's certainly something a challenge for not just the UK government, but governments sort of in in general. Yeah. Um, to make sure that that they're, they're they're moving at the same speed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think from my just from my side for the uh, the competition law and the digital society, most of the major cases, uh, and indeed most of the interesting competition cases, are arising in the digital uh, sector. Uh, I think for this particular subject matter, the 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 really interesting point is about defining a competitor where there may be very few other competitors to work for so that that's i think very interesting challenge for many um regardless of sort of which side of the equation you happen to be on um and then maybe just as a final word well let's give it to the cma in their press release for the so-called guidance that they issued which as they say is more of an instruction they remind ourselves that businesses have no excuse for not following the law and ignorance is no defense so with that ominous line, Robert, thank you very much for your contribution and our very interesting discussion. Uh, and that is the end of this podcast today. Thank you. Thank you.